Psalms chapter 56. You know, you read the Psalms, and sometimes you get a Bible that'll give you a little bit of history about the Psalms, and most of them were written by David. You realize that in his life, some of these Psalms were written under stress. He was fleeing, or he was repenting of a sin, like in Psalms 51, or his back was against the wall, as we say, and he was not sure what to do or how to do it. And in these times, he was inspired by the Lord to write down what he was going through and how he was feeling and the thoughts that were in his mind. We read this, we realize that we have some of the same thoughts, some of the same fears, and some of the same problems that he faced, we face in our time, and and not his time, but problems are the same in any generation. The same devil that was in his day is the same devil that's in our day. He still does what he always has tried to do, to kill, steal, and destroy. And if we're serious about our Christianity, we listen to what God says we ought to do about him, how we deal with him. How do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? If we don't apply the instruction that God gives us to our life, I think the devil will have a free course at us and continue to make us miserable, and we'll keep saying, well, I got the Bible, I go to church, I do this, I do that. And we don't realize that, you know, there's more to life than just attending church and being religious. You have to make application of what God says. And if you do, it begins to change your life, change your way of living, change your attitude. You turn your frown upside down, you begin to smile. You begin to know that you have confidence in God, that you can cope with this because, well, you put his word to the test and it worked. And so when we read this psalm, just remember that the man who wrote this is no different than we are. He was a king, yes, but he was a subject of the devil just like you are. He was an object of the devil. The devil aimed at him to defeat him just like he would anybody else or your children or your marriage or anything. And so this is where it begins in Psalm 56. I want to call this message, though, this title won't apply until we get to the end of it. But God's commitment to us. God's commitment to us. Verse 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to 5, 6, and 7. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. For they be many that fight against me, O Lord Most High. Verse 5. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the people, O Lord. Well, David obviously doesn't like what's going on any more than we do. And he's experiencing the attacks from from people. Maybe it was Absalom that was pursuing him. Maybe it was Saul. It seemed like as a king and the great psalmist of Israel, he was always fleeing. And he had a heart for God, but he had his share of troubles. Maybe that's why when he was only 70 years old, he was an old man, wore out, and he died. And that's not so old. 70 doesn't seem to be so old. It does to you that are 20, but it's really not when you're past that. But anyway, 
Our enemies are similar. We have enemies. In Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know that. That there is not a day in your life that somebody's not after you. You may not be able to see that somebody. It's the devil. His wiles and his schemes and his plans. He'll do whatever he can to distract you while you're in church. Do whatever he can to make you aware that people are talking about you. They may not even be talking about you, but he makes you think they are. So you can act like stuff you think is true when it's not true at all. But the devil does that. He's subtle. He works against your mind. He has no other way to get to you. He has to work on your mind to get things in there. You know, we've all had our run-ins with people. We still do. And as long as you live in this earth, you'll have to deal with that. You're really not allowed to fight back. You're not allowed to give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You're told you have to turn the other cheek, and you'll get chances to do that. Or you're not allowed to say things back in defense of yourself when God's putting you to the test. Sometimes you do like Jesus. You just keep your mouth shut and walk away. But people are always against this too. People don't like your religion. They don't like your faith. They don't like the way you believe. They don't like the way you operate. They believe it's dumb for you to trust God for your healing or for your tomorrows or your money or a job or something that's not like the way they do it. And it bothers people. So they talk about that. They come against you. They treat you wrong if they, they have a chance. The Bible said they lie in wait. They're deceivers. This whole world's against us. The Bible says the whole world lies in darkness. It's under the control of the devil or under the oversight of the devil. God's in control. But everything out there, if you're not careful, is designed to defeat you. So David was talking about such, such things here. Plus his other problem, his third problem would probably be his nature, the way he was raised, the way he thinks. We all have that problem. It's amazing how many times we get down on ourselves or we just give up because we feel weak and inadequate and you can't and the devil tells you, well, you've crossed the line. Now you've done it. Now you've done it. You've gone too far. And we haven't gone too far. We're only walking in the, in the light that he's given us and sometimes we struggle with that. But he makes you think you're a failure. And then you have to wrestle with that. You've got the devil, you've got people, then you've got yourself you've got to deal with. And so when these things start happening to people, and they do all the time, we're familiar with that, problems pop up. Sometimes you want to give up. Sometimes you feel like quitting. Sometimes you feel like you want to throw in the towel. If your Christianity is half-hearted, if you're not really eager to do things God's way, if you're not wanting to learn about the Lord, chances are you will give up. You may not quit going to church, you just quit trying. That's giving up. But notice in verse 3, verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 10 and verse 11, he repeats this. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Verse 10, in God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do to me. It sort of repeats himself, but he makes a point. Like he uses the word trust three times. 
He makes it a point of saying that I will praise your word three times. It's like David in his walk with the Lord has discovered not a secret, though they're hidden from most people, but he has discovered what life is really all about when you walk with the Lord. Life is not about what you see and what's forecast and what is threatening you. Life is all about whether or not you're walking God's way. And he learned that. He didn't go to church to say he was a member of something, therefore, that made him a better citizen. His life wasn't about that. As he listened to God on those hillsides and as he tuned in, things became real to him. It wasn't just a religious exercise on Sunday morning that lasted 30 minutes. It was a life. It was seeking after what is called life. Jesus said, my words are life. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Not many people really understand that. Many people can quote it. But David found out that there's something about the word of God. When it's in your heart, it's always personal. It's not some word that is on your Bible, on the ink on a piece of paper, but a word that upon pondering and a word upon meditating and thinking about it, it's a word that the Holy Spirit writes on your heart till it's no more something out there, it's something in here. Isn't it possible that you can hide the word in your heart? Thy word have I hid in my heart, which means it's not in your heart just automatically because you go to church. You do something about it. You, you put it there. Thy word have I hid in my heart. I did because you showed it to me. I wanted it. I enjoy it. I like it. It's not only refreshing in what it builds inside of me, like with confidence and hope for tomorrow, but your word is absolutely wonderful. Who else could make the promises to you that God does? Who else could tell you that he can do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think? Who else? Nobody else can do that. There is nothing else like that. Even the psalmist said, who is like unto you? Glorious and, and holy. And I mean, you're beside a human understanding. I mean, the almighty God. Not only is he that, but he becomes personal. He comes down to where I am to let me hear his word. He gives to me. He gives to me the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants me to know him. Not just know about him so I can fill in all the blanks on the little quarterly, but he wants me to know him. To have an awareness of him in, in my life. This is what we call a personal relationship. It's a living awareness that you have a connection with God and he speaks to you and, as he said three times, you can trust him. I wonder how many times David thought, how many times should I have been slain out here in the wilderness? We don't know all the details about everything. How many times should I have been captured? How many times did I escape just in time? How many times did you just suddenly stop while the car ran through the intersection? How many times in your life has God been there and we didn't realize it? How many times has he kept something from hurting you, falling on you, or whatever? You know, you know the stories. There's thousands of them. How many times was he there? 
having a personal interest in your life, making a decision to take care of you. He said that he that started this good work will what? Finish it. Jeremiah said, you don't even know the things that I have planned for you. But I'm going to orchestrate things in your life so that as you move in your life, I'm going to lead you towards these things. You're mine. Can you imagine God saying that to you? You're mine. I'm going to be your God. You're going to know me as I know you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to sustain you. And when it's over, I'm going to bring you into my kingdom. Now, in the meantime, doesn't look like it sometimes, does it? And thus is the battle here that goes on. It, it just certainly doesn't look like that. But a spiritual man's response to God is in God, I will praise his word. Almighty God, I will trust you. God, all these people that are lined up against me, it wasn't it Psalms 3 that we sing, many are they that rise up against me, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Somebody knew something, didn't he? David had to have experienced that to be able to write that with such surety. Lord, there's a lot of people lined against me, but you know what? You are my shield. You're my hope. No weapon formed against me will prosper because you have taken me as your own personal subject. I'm in your kingdom. You're my God. I'm your child. I'm never alone. You've even assigned goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. You've even said that you will give charge to your angels concerning me. Or concerning me, you will give charge to your angels to keep me in all my ways, even the days I don't think you are. Even the days I feel so empty. Those days you feel so lonely and neglected and you feel like you've you're just not his anymore. As he trains you to believe that he is there. Not because you feel him because you're all oozy and goosebumpy. That's a good word, goosebumpy. But because you by faith believe that what he has said, not only is he able to do, but that he is doing it. And if he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he won't. And he says, where you are, I am, he is. And if he says no weapon that's formed against you will prosper, it won't. And he said, if he leaves me by still waters and green, then he does. There's something about me that has to have such a grasp of what he said that it comes into the reality of my thinking. So I thought, he is. He, if he said it, he is. And when it does, your enemy doesn't stop coming against you. You don't stop having problems. There's no cessation of your fighting and your warfare. It's just that now your weapons are bigger than they used to be. Your weapons are more sure than they used to be. Now you're fighting with something you never had before. And though you can't see the devil, you can't see how he is affected by what you're saying to him. You know, the Bible said you resist the devil, he'll flee from him. Well, you can't see him run. He didn't slam the door when he left. You have to believe. You have to believe he did. Well, the basis for your believing that he did is because God said, if you would, he will. I did, he did. I don't feel any different. 
the pain necessarily hadn't gone away or the problem or the situation I'm dealing with hadn't gone away. But I believe that God's taking care of it. And because I believe it, I choose to smile. I choose to say, I will praise the Lord. In the heat of the battle, when all this stuff is going against me, I choose to trust him and praise him and thank him. That's the spiritual man's response. This is a man in whom God is growing. God doesn't grow. God is. But you're growing in him to where more and more he increases while more and more you decreases. God like these new words now. But more and more, as light shines into an eager heart, as God speaks and you're willing to listen, God causes that like a light to begin to shine. It gets brighter. And not only is this how you know who he is, but it's also how you know what he does. And when you know what he is and who he is and what he does, and all of this is done just for you, then no wonder you would say, as this man did, I will trust him. Think of it. Now, I'll use this verse again in just a minute. But Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man. The basis I said months ago for my faith is this. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? It's as though God asked his people, did I tell you what I would do? Am I able to do it? What's too hard for God? And we realize nothing is too hard for God. We just have a hard time processing that because in this world, that just seems to be a a promise that's beyond what is ordinary or to be expected. It just doesn't make sense. Years ago, when I would not go to a bank and borrow to have a house, I remember loving people, saying, you'll never have anything. See, you can't get anything like you want to get it. You can't just say, I will trust the Lord, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord will supply my needs. And in those days, I was out doing what I'm doing now, only there wasn't a lot of response. People felt sorry for me. They didn't say that. I think they did. I think my parents were concerned about me. You never have anything. You're a preacher, but you don't have a church. You're just traveling around. Tom, you can't do that. And yet I thought, well, why can't I? Now you tell me that I can't, and yet what I'm reading says he can. Now what am I going to do? Believe the masses of of well-meaning people? Or look like a freak of nature and just believe God. And I did. I wouldn't go borrow for anything. I just said, no, God will supply my needs because Jesus said, what things ever you desire, when you pray, believe. I teach it like that. I still do. Hadn't changed this message in 45 years. If he said he will do it, he'll do it. I've had people question that for 45 years. It hasn't worked for a lot of people because somewhere along the line, there was a disconnect between them and the reality that if God said it, God will do it. It's just disconnected. They were living to get something instead of living to know somebody. 
Just like Deuteronomy 28 said, if you will diligently hearken. And then the rest of that has to do with how you relate to the word. He said, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you have a good banker, if you got a good credit roll, if you got a good credit rating, you can have, he didn't say anything about that. There is a world out there that needs that because that's the way they operate. But you see, we don't need that. God has something better for us. Our problem is patience. Waiting on the Lord. Learning how while you wait. Deeper truths that will follow you to the grave. Make your life wonderful. And especially peace. Especially. So back to where I was. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, won't he do it? I mean, if he spoke it, will he not make it good? Then why does the church have a problem with that? I don't mean the church as much as, well, I do, the people in the church. Why is it when you say that, look, if God said it, he'll do it? Not maybe, not has, but he might not. Not could, but he might not, but he will. And yet people think, well... That sounds too good to be true, and you know what we've taught in the world. If it sounds too good to be true, it, it usually is. But not in this case. Now, I believe personally, I believe there is a deeper truth that God will put into the heart of those who want it. A truth that literally, literally will make you free. I believe that. I believe there is a revelation that God puts into the heart of his people who look for it. That it has such a powerful influence on their relationship to God that their confidence in that revelation sets them free. Whom should I be afraid? What should I worry about? If God be for me, who can be against me? That's what he said in Romans 8, and that's what he also said right there in verse 4. I'll get it. I will not be afraid of what man can do. Man wants to destroy me, get me deterred. Even your best-meaning friends want you to power down and give up all of this beyond religion you got. Won't you just fall back and get in place and find your pew and be normal? I like to think I am pretty normal. I just know in whom... I have believed and I know him and I believe that he whom I know is able to do what he said he would do for me. It is his idea to do these things, not mine. The idea to believe came from God. He gave it to me and I'm believing him for it. Why wouldn't I proclaim that? Why wouldn't you proclaim that? It's what God does for us. And I think this is what is being imparted here in this verse. God has no problem doing anything, and and he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to say, well, I could do all of that. Don't get your hopes up now. But, you know, because sometimes God might not want you to have such things, so he won't give it to you. That ain't what the Bible says. He says in Malachi 3 in verse 6, he said, I am the Lord, I change not. Again, Numbers 23 said, if I said it, I'll do it, and I'm not going to take it back. I'm not going to change my mind. That's what I do. 
So therefore the psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled, especially in my heart. It's settled in heaven, and it's settled in my heart. Now go to verse 8. Then we're going to talk now about God's commitment to us. This is where it begins. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know. Why? For God is for me. Isn't that good? God is for me. How do you know he is? Because he said he was. Well, it doesn't look like you don't go by what it looks like. You go by what you believe. Faith comes by hearing. This is just words on a paper until they become printed on the tables of your heart. When they do, it becomes faith. But notice, he said about his wanderings. Two things here in this verse. God has a book of remembrance. God is keeping records. You know, when he said in Malachi 3, he said, you have robbed me. You're under a curse. How did he know that? How did God know all that? Well, for one thing, he's God. He has an endless knowledge. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he cannot know. Nothing that's knowable. Like, how would you put a square peg in it? That's not knowable. That's ignorant. God knows everything. He's omniscient. But isn't it amazing that a God who created the world, omnipotent, all that power and might that could create a world, they're still trying to figure out how many billions or trillions or whatever, or stars, planets, whatever is out there. And he made all of that with the word. Not over 60 billion years, but just in one day, he spoke his word and that became. Now, scientists say, you're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. One of us is, but I'm not. Because it's the fool that says there is no God. And when, if you're an evolutionist, you don't believe in God. You believe in a concept of God. You do not believe in God. You have an idea of God being an energy in the world. And, you know, he's the force of nature and all of that stuff. Mother Earth stuff. But when you begin to think about all the things that God has done and all the things that God has said, all that he is and the greatness of all of that, he becomes personal to you, as we said earlier. A personal relationship, a personal knowledge. He comes down to your level and he says, I have a book. And you're in it. And this book is about everything in your life. Every breath Every moment, even the hairs of your head, even the thoughts that you had that nobody else knows, there is nothing about you that God doesn't know. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your foolishness. He knows how you think and how you are. There's nothing about you that, as I said, that God doesn't know. And he cares for you. And David realized that. He said, you know, Lord, I've never been alone. I've never been cut out. You've never torn the pages out of your book. 
You've never just discarded me. You've never dropped me off somewhere that I no longer am. God cares about me. I'm a part of his plan. You like that? What if I said you are a part of his great plan? He has included you in the final product. When it's all over, you had a role to play in what happened. You don't feel like that. You can't see how that would apply to you, but it does. That when the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, it means that, that God is behind the way he wants his people to go to accomplish his purpose and when it's over, to be a part of what he did. And everything's, like I said, in memory of God. He, it's all in a book. One day, the Bible speaks of more than one book. I don't want to go into the books, but the book of Revelation talks about at the end of it that there'll be books open. There's a book of life. Malachi 3 talks about uh, God overheard people talking. Malachi 3 something, and he said God overheard two saints talking. And he listened to them, and he said a book of remembrance was written before him for the righteous and so forth. God knows our hearts as well as what we were when he chose us to be his. And we look around this room, there aren't any mighty soldiers in here. I don't think when God saved people, he saved perfect people that didn't need to repent. He didn't save anybody that had wings on their back. Some of you weren't as bad as some of us. Or some of us weren't as bad as you. But he knew what he was getting when he got you, didn't he? He knew what you did before you got saved, all them joints you were at and joints you smoked if you did that. He knew there's nothing you didn't do. All the lies you told, all the deceiving ways you treated people. He knew, he knew all about that before he saved you. You wouldn't have saved you. I probably wouldn't have saved you either if I was God, but God saw the end. In fact, before you were ever put on this earth, before your mother and dad ever met, before their parents ever met, before their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents ever met, God knew you. You were in his plan. Remember Ephesians 1? Before the foundation of the world, there was a time coming when the time came your time came, he puts you here and is directing tonight, right now, your path through life to accomplish his purpose. He's going to use you. You're a part of it. He's, he's not going to discard you. He'll let you wallow a little bit. He'll let you go this way and go that way. Even Peter writes, after we have suffered for a while, then the Lord will finish the work in 1 Peter 5. He's in charge. He's in control. I don't know all the things that he knows. I just know what he's given me to know, and that's in this word. And this word tells me that he's going to take care of things. All my wonderings, my whole life, is like an epistle to God. It is not for sale, but everything is there. And he said in verse 8, Thou tellest my wonderings, Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Well, what does that mean? Well, a bottle was not a glass jar. It was like 
a wine skin. There were no bottles like we know bottles today, but these skins were called bottles. And in some other cultures, and maybe in some of the diggings and the excavations they have found, like a little vase you would set on your counter. When a lot of people mourned and they went to funerals or when somebody died or when they were in despair and they would weep and they would cry, something that all of us will have a chance to do at least in this life a few times. If you've never cried, you will. You will. And I'm not talking about some old dog show. I'm talking about your Christian life. But they would often cry, and they say they would wring the tears out into one of these little vases. It had to do with their passion, their feeling, their affection for somebody that had died, mourning the loss of a loved one. I mean, their heart was broken to a sense that they were grieving. And they mourned and they wept. You didn't cry over a little body. <laughs> Catch that one. Not that way, but they would catch their tears and they said this, I was read, they would wring these out in the little bottle and seal it. And when that person died or they put them in a tomb, they put the bottle next to them in the tomb. It was like, you know, you, you meant something to me. You're a great loss to me. This is the testimony of that, though it's just a figure of speech because those tears will dry. And if you looked into that vase 100 years or 200 or 1,000 years later, you wouldn't find any water in it because it's all dried up. But how many times in this life, how many times, or have you ever in this life as a Christian, have you ever felt so uncouth, unworthy, messed up so much that you actually cried? Have you ever wept over your sins? And by weeping, I don't mean just boo-hooing and bawling and squalling. I don't know how to spell squalling either. But have you ever felt despair over your sins in your life or your unfaithfulness to God? Have you ever felt anything depressing because you gave up? Have you ever backed off before and said, I'm no longer worthy to live this way? I feel abandoned by the Lord. I have surely messed up so bad, I can't put my finger on exactly what, but I'm sure I've messed up so many times and enough that God no longer wants me in his program. You ever felt like that? See, that doesn't have to be true for you to feel like it's true because that's the devil's work. To just make you feel like that the way you feel and the way you're thinking about it is the truth. And sometimes it's not necessarily that at all. It's just that, you know, God lets you run into a wall every now and then. God lets you trip every now and then. See, he lets you. I didn't the 91st Psalm say uh, something about falling or tripping? Lest you dash your what? Foot? But sometimes in this life, you maybe get ahead of God. You take off running. You know a little bit more about it than he does. You don't want to wait on the Lord. You don't want to be patient to the coming of the Lord to supply a need or something. So you jump out ahead of God and you do things your own way. And in a sense, God folds his arms and say, all right. All right, you're smarter than I am. Go ahead. You're on your own. He hasn't abandoned you, but he has abandoned the 
the feeling that you have, that association that you have, that nearness, and then everything seems to go wrong. You opened your mouth and put your foot in it. People were really offended at something you said or the way you acted or the way you talked to somebody. And people let you know it. And being a sensitive person, God's people do become sensitive. Trust me. God's people are not insensitive to things that bring conviction. So you're kind of wallowing in your, in your pity. And it's the devil's job to tell you that you're no good. You've gone too far. You have overreached his boundaries. It's over. You're done. We're through. See, if God ever does abandon or let somebody go, you won't have these feelings. You won't care. But the reason he puts this thing in your heart is to draw you back. Repentance is a work of God. It always has been. It always will be. It's God causing you to see the error of your way or the foolishness of your actions or how insincere you might be acting or the way you were. God doesn't want you like that. So he lets you just hit these walls as I'm talking about and all these things that are happening that you feel rejected. And when you do, you get down, you get depressed. Then hopefully you realize that, you know, the most exciting thing in my life is God. The most wonderful pure treasure I have is the Lord. It's not church, not religion. It's not being a this or a that. It's a relationship, I said when I started. It's an association. And when I can't sense I have that anymore, nothing can work anymore. And nothing is the way it's supposed to be. And God lets those things happen to draw you back to him. And I think the psalmist wrote about it. Put your finger there and go to Psalms 80. Psalms 80 and verse 5. Thou feedest them with the bread of tears and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Would God do that? Hope you all listen to me tonight. Would he do that? Would he take somebody that's cocky and arrogant or pretty highfalutin, you know, Charlie Potatoes, would he take somebody that thinks a little more highly of himself than he ought to, somebody that's had a real Christian experience, vibrant and enthusiastic, full of zeal and gusto, could a person like that ever really think they're important? Boy, you got to have me. And then God just let them go for a little while until they hit a wall. Is God's purpose in just making them depressed to say, now I'm done with you? No. Maybe it's when you're in a little puddle. When you've melted down and all this real and genuine in you is just the little you in the middle of all of that. That you hear that we small voices saying, I don't want all your flamboyance. I just want you. I don't want you to think you deserve and you've earned and you're really somebody important and everybody must look to you now and, and you're so important. Oh, what will we do without you? That's not what I want out of you. That's my role. I just want you to be 
one of the little people in my life that's accomplishing my plans. I might want to make you a preacher, but just preach what I give you. Don't preach what you think. Preach what I give you. Say what you feel inspired to say. If you don't have anything, don't say anything. When everybody wants you to perform and and there's nothing there of me for you to do, don't do anything. Learn to walk with me on my terms in my way. Do things the way I want you to do. Because if you don't, you're going to find that when you hit that wall, genuine hot tears will come down your cheek. Again, I don't know how many any of you have ever done that. That you're your relationship to God feels so flawed, so distant. You are so dejected, and you miss that more than you realize, and you actually weep over it. There's something about the Christian life that will include tears, not only with fear and trembling, but also with tears. I think the Apostle Paul knew something about it. Put your finger there in Psalms 56. Go to 2 Corinthians 11 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 11. Look at these verses. I mean, our walk is not simple, is it? Keep your hands on the plow and don't look back. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have tribulations in the world. People are going to hate you. That's not much to look forward to. And yet you don't have to look forward to that. You'll say, oh boy, maybe I'll get persecuted today. You don't have to look forward to that. It'll find you. Persecution knows exactly where you are and God knows the right time for you to knuckle down and do what you need to do. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, Paul writes of his journeys and his wanderings. Like David. In verse 24, he said, Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. I guarantee you that hurt. Amen. Now, why would they beat a man like Paul? Bodily stature was weak. Uh, Speech was contemptible. He wasn't a good speaker. He wasn't an imposing figure. There was nothing about him that you would want to be like. But his message was so powerful that it aroused every agency of darkness against him. Of the Jews, five times received off 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I've suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have floated in the ocean on my journeys with God. thinking about, what am I doing wrong? You suppose he ever thought that? Do you suppose it ever occurred to him that he's missed God? You suppose he ever heard a voice say, this couldn't be God? Nobody with all of your blue blood in you, all that pharisaical knowledge and all your, whoo, and now that God got you, knocks you down, blinded you, heals you like that, Gave you a message of, whoa, man, wrote half the New Testament. Nobody's like you. What are you doing floating in the ocean? What are you doing getting beat up every time you speak? Are are you speaking the wrong thing? God judging you. You're being judged. Was he? Just part of the life. 
You want to be an apostle? We can't relate to this. Nobody in this room can relate to this. None of us. A price a man was willing to pay just to be that instrument that God was using to accomplish his purpose. But God picked a man he knew wouldn't quit. This gnarly little fellow was full of spit and grits. He wrote a book one time. It says, not how big the dog is in a fight, it's how big the dog's heart is. He hung in there. He's the one who wrote Philippians 3. I have not yet accomplished all that God has, but I'm pressing in towards that mark. I'm not about to quit. I've had so many chances to quit. The devil has told me so many times I've missed it. I was in a jail cell and back in Acts 23. I was in a jail. I'd been hurt and fought over. I had to go to Rome. And you know what happened in Rome? I lost my mind. Well, I got my head cut off. But they say he did. I don't know. I wasn't there. But verse 26, look at this one for in journeyings often. Maybe he didn't have time to get married. Maybe he didn't have a lifestyle that would enable him to fulfill his marital duties. He'd be gone all the time. I almost was there. You can ask her. But in journeyings often, in perils, perils means danger. Notice perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils by the heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings, fastings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, and beside those things that are without, that which cometh on me daily for the care of the churches. And one thing that drove me on and stayed in my mind is how about all these churches? How are these folks doing? And he went through all of that so he could minister to those people. What kind of man was he? We got any of them here? We got a young one that wants to be a Paul? Anybody want to give up your tomorrows and your future and uh, gold dust and the White charger living happily ever after to go to some dark jungle and never show up here again ever? Spend the rest of your life with people that can't even say thank you? If God sovereignly sent you there, who's willing to do all of that? It's not an easy life. We're told it's not. But we got a whole lot of this world's way in us. We don't want to give it up. I'm telling you the truth. You know that. There's a whole lot of comfort that we've come to expect. And boy, we don't want to give up that. I mean, you get clean clothes and a clean shower every day and everything is in order and everything is stacked just right. And who wants to give up that? Who wants to go somewhere where people won't even appreciate what you're doing? They're looking more for what you can give them than what you can say to them. Unthankful. Who wants to go to that? This man did. This apostle did. He said, I'll go to him. 
You see, Psalms 126 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Because I promise you this, there's a lot of greater men than we'll ever know. In the eyes of God, they're they're true deep saints who did what I just said. They just disappeared from the elegance of society, from the latest fashions. They found themselves some faraway place. Never heard from again, but they learned. One thing that I'm sure they all learned to do was pray. We take prayer for granted here. I think people whose lives are in peril, you don't know. The only dream or vision I can ever remember about myself wasn't, didn't end well. And I've wondered so many times, I had this vision of being in a little, look more like a South American situation, next to a river. And I was there. I think I was barefoot with all the rest of them. We got in one of these outriggers to go up the stream and people started jumping out of trees with machetes and chopping and I found myself pulling away from my body. I was watching it happen. I woke up, thank God. I woke up and said, whoo, I'm dreaming. <laughs> I went to South America once, to Ecuador, and I thought, how far away from a river? Because <laughs> I'm keeping my shoes on. <laughs> But I wonder, I wonder how many times people that feel alone and dejected, nobody's supporting them, we forgot about them. Oh yeah, I remember him. They're down there laboring in the Lord's vineyard, just enough to eat, but they've learned how to pray. They've learned how to find their peace with God and learn, learn to watch the ravens feed them. And the little miracles take place every day in their life. And see people get saved, truly saved. And attentive audience, teaching them. Every time you teach them, they just, like in the Bible, they just hung on to every word. Tears. He that goeth forth and weepeth, Psalm 126, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Maybe there's something about the Lord's work that sometimes get pretty intense and you're well aware that you can't do this by yourself. You need some help. You might have to just get alone and pray. There's a reason Jesus prayed all night long many times. There's a reason that he spent many, many lonely hours just talking to God. Remember, he was like us in the days of his flesh. He was. He was called the man Jesus, son of Adam. He's also called the son of God. There's more theology there to that, but that's enough. Would you look for a moment at Psalms 42? Psalms 42 in verse 3. Here's what the psalmist said. He said, my tears are my meat. Day and night. In a relationship with, with God, in which God means more to you than anything else. To not do it his way, to miss the mark there really bothers you. And sometimes it's just, I just want this first. I want to know you first. And maybe it was tears that way. Lord, I am falling so far short. God help me. 
We look at them and think, you're falling short. You need help? <laughs> you're the strongest man I ever saw. And yet, the strongest of the strong very often need to bow before the Lord and say, Lord, I need help. What shall I do? Because that's the way God wants us to relate to him. Aren't you glad that one day in Revelation 7 that God will take the likes of us and wipe away all tears from our eyes? There'll be grieving no more, folks. You'll never again, you'll never again look back at your mistakes. Never, ever again. Heaven is not a place where you regret what happened, for that's all gone. It's a place of joy. Your sins will be removed as far as the, well, there won't be an east or west in heaven. It just is. Your iniquities are gone. You don't remember how you acted and what you once said and the ugly things you did. You'll never know it anymore. That's erased from your memory. You've arrived. God has brought you into his kingdom. You become a new person. You are changed. You got a new name. You got a new life. Everything. And he said he's written all of this stuff down. All of this has been written down in his book. Now, having said that, let me close with the title, verse 12. Verse 12. I think this is the reason I wanted to use this psalm anyway. I had to say all the other part to get to this about your vows. Psalms 56, again, and verse 12. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praise unto thee. Thy vows. Now, a vow is a solemn promise. It's a promise that somebody makes or a pledge as a personal commitment. It's a giving of your word to somebody, in this case, to God, with what you're willing to do. Let me ask you a question. Has God ever made any such promises to you about what he's willing to do? Well, of course he has. Of course he has. You know, Catholic priests, I am told, I don't know if they still do or not, but Catholic priests take a vow of poverty or celibacy, which hasn't been true historically, but... They take a vow. I promise never to do well, prosper. <laughs> and they don't. Either one. I give my word. A vow's like that. To me, one of the most sacred vows that are made is made in, in a marriage ceremony. I don't know how much it means to people later on in their life. Because a lot of marriages that start out Agreeing with God the right way wind up with agreeing with anything but God. Because a vow is a commitment. They say it before God and these witnesses. A woman takes a vow. She says to a man, I am willing to leave my parents, the only home I've ever known. I'm willing to abandon all of my personal rights Give all of that up for myself and be joined to you to be your wife. 
to submit to you and to honor you and respect you, to go with you where you go and your ways will be my ways and your plans will be my plans. I give you my word. I will do that. And he looks at her and he goes, wow. Then he says to her, I give you my word. I will love you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. I will be what you need me to be all the days of our lives together until Jesus comes. I don't think a man can commit himself more deeply to a woman or a woman can commit herself more deeply to a man than to say that. See, the best thing we can do in life with commitment is to, is to give our word. Our word is us. Even the courts of law says to put your hand on what? Which they're outlawing. And it makes sense, does it? Just like Kentucky wants people to smoke pot but quit smoking cigarettes. I'm hearing some dumb stuff in this world. Quit smoking but smoke pot. But anyway, you lay your hands on the Bible. I swear. Sort of a vow. I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then they lie. But that's the best the court can do. Then they make a law that if you did not swear to tell you, you perjure yourself, and then we can prosecute you for lying. That's the best any of us can do. You give me your word. You tell me you'll do something, all I can do is take you at your word. Me, you, you, me. My wife said she'll do this or do that. I can't make her do that. I'm not supposed to. That's not part of the plan. I'm supposed to take her at her word. If I told her I would do what I said I would do, she can't make me do that. All she can do is trust for me to do this. God is the one that put us together. That's what a vow is. It's the highest level of commitment a human being, I think, can make in this life. A solemn commitment of yourself to something that God gives you. God has some hard things to say about people that don't do it. For example, follow me. In Deuteronomy 23, let me just read this. I've got it copied down here. Just follow me. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, he says, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee. And it would be a sin in thee. Do you realize if you take a vow and then you're slack to pay it or to do it, it's a sin? Well, then is it possible that a whole lot of what we call marriage today, that, that sin has found its way into the home? Because one or the other was unwilling to pay those vows? And if sin is in the home and it's not dealt with, what does it do? It festers. It affects the children. It affects the way the house is run. Doesn't keep you from going to church. Doesn't keep you from singing and reading your Bible. There is a restraining influence in your home when sin begins to occupy. Because a vow is a solemn thing to God. Listen at this one. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. 
better it is that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. If you're not going to keep your word, don't give it. If you're not going to keep your end of the bargain, don't make a bargain. We're going to be judged. Everybody in this room is going to be judged by what we have done. Not only what you've said, but what you've done about what you said. Here's another verse, Psalms 50 and verse 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. Let me ask you a question. Are these vows to be understood as vows that I make to God? Back in verse 12, go back to Psalm 56 if you left there. He said, thy vows are upon me. Are they his vows to me? Or are they referring to the vows that I have made concerning him? For example, the New King James says, vows I made to you are binding upon me, O God. So it's like me making vows to God and not God to me. Now, I'm speaking of this in terms of God's vows to me. Men smarter than I say, well, not necessarily. Here's one that says, I keep the memory of my debt to you. He calls a debt a vow. That's not really a good translation. Another translation says, my vows to thee I must perform. So, that's true. I'm still asking the question, verse 12, when he said, thy vows are upon me, are they my vows to him that he remembers? Or having learned and walked with him, are they an awareness of his vows made to me? One translator says this, your vows are on me, God, and I will give thank offerings to you. Your vows are upon me. What are his vows? Well, if they're promises, if they are things, God says, I watch over my word to what? Ask what you will and it shall be done and a thousand more promises that you're all aware of. Will he do what he said? Will he keep his vows? Who believes it? Who really believes that what God said, that God has bound himself to his word? Who believes that? Is God bound to his word or is he separated from it? Is God and his word one? Is it or not? He said his word was life. He said man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? That God, in Jeremiah 1.12, he said he watches over his word to perform it. What are we supposed to do with that? Now, if somebody said, well, you say that about every week, I'll say it many, many more weeks. Because you can't hear that too much. What about that? He watches over his word to do what he said. Do you believe that he will do what he said? A lot of people say, I don't know. I hope he does. I wish he would. But that's not faith. Faith is when you say, Lord, if you said you would, then you will. Faith is Numbers twenty-three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent or take it back. Hath he said... And shall he not do it? Hath he spoken? Shall he not make it good? Who are we to come and assemble before him? 
Who are we to study and learn and take notes about all of this than to come to the conclusion that I'm not sure he'll do that? See, my relationship needs to be tightened up. How about yours? I want it to be where my faith doesn't operate because I'm trying real hard to get it. I want my faith to operate without me even thinking about it. I never thought about sinning, did you? When I dropped something I didn't want to drop, I made a mistake. I said words I didn't have to think of. I didn't say, now, what word should I use in this situation? What ugly curse word? Could, I didn't even have to think about it. It was a natural. I was by nature, naturally, a child of disobedience. And I think the more God begins to take place in your life and begin to flood you and cleanse you and make you what he wants you to be, I think the more and more your faith just naturally grips it and grasps it. Well, no, that, he can't do that. No, I rebuke that. I have to stop and think about where I heard that. I've heard that many times. No, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. No, sir, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And somebody said, how do you know the Bible so much? The same way you know phone numbers. How many phone numbers do you know? How many birthdays do you know? Yeah, okay. That's the way I, with the Bible, it's important to me too. So you see, he said in closing, the God who watches over his word to perform it is a God who has made magnificent promises. None are out of range. He has never said anything he cannot do, has never said a promise he is unwilling to fulfill. All his promises are yes and amen to you. Now I'm closing. This is it. Because we have to, it's the last verse. Verse 13, he is in charge of all that's created. He is in charge for thou hast delivered my soul from death. Can he? The next to the last book in the Bible, little book of Jude in the first chapter. <laughs> Jude doesn't have any chapters. Verse 24 says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the throne of his grace faultless. All the wearies and journeys and all the long nights and the pain and the difficulty and, oh, it's not going to work or death is coming at your door and knocking on you. You say, no, let me tell you something. Death can't have me for thou hast delivered my soul from what? Thou hast delivered my soul from death. Something says you're going to die. This isn't going to work. Something else says I shall live. And not die and see the glory of the Lord. Amen. How do you know that? Because God said it. You're welcome. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this truth that makes us free. Thank you for your tolerance of us and your patience, your long suffering, your watchful care for spending so much time with us and being concerned for us and about us, sending angels to keep us, watching as we go, and yet we're never a problem, we're never too big. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the people that are here tonight. Thank you for all the promises that you've given to us 
May we never neglect them. May they never pass from us. May they never slip. May these be the very tools that you're going to use, not only to refine us, but bring us to the place that you're going to bring us. Because if they're in us, we'll never quit. We'll never give up. We'll never throw in the towel. And I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen.